Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Side, a podcast about black science fiction and fantasy and staying on the same page in our marriage, baby, baby. I'm one of your co-hosts, Amber Wallen. I'm Ben. And today we're in for a treat. Ben, who's here to join us today? We have our neighbor. I'm very excited. And the story of this is that we were just kicking it on the back porch one day and we were I was explaining the book we were reading and Div here was like, holy shit, I'm reading the exact same book. And I got really excited. So we decided to have you come and give another perspective because honestly, I think Amber was tired of hearing me. I mean, every day, right? <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Divya. I am Ben and Amber's neighbor. <laughs> By random happenstance, I had this book lying around and I'd been meaning to read it. Um, I'm a writer and love sci-fi, love reading of all kinds, uh, really. So I kind of jumped at the opportunity to be here and to talk about some stuff with y'all. Yes! I'm not going to go into the book just yet, but what what a book to read with your neighbor. That's true. <laughs> it's, it's like a very dark, triggering book. And I was like 50 pages in, I texted them. I was like, uh... <laughs> I didn't know that this was what we were getting into. Are you ready to talk about that with us? I think it's probably good that we got drunk and like we're happy beforehand just Agreed. because that made it easier to be like, they're not crazy people inviting me over to, you know, steal my organs. I think I'm just tired of like small talk. And so one way to not have small talk is force your neighbors to read like really, really dark, disturbing and thought provoking books. So that's, that's what we decided to do. So I love it. I hope this is a start of a wonderful, friendship sort of the background of this uh this book that we're reading the reason that we wanted to read it is that the author is a trans author and decided to recently not have their 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 most recent book submitted to the woman's prize and the woman's prize was started in 1991 when the man booker prize failed to nominate a single woman uh, uh to be shortlisted at all and uh, however, as cycle of oppressions work, uh, the Women's Prize has been pretty transphobic and dismissive of gender fluid writers. And that sort of idea really got my frustration because oftentimes when people seek to right a wrong, they end up stomping on other people and creating more wrongs, particularly when it comes to like awards as well. And so, yeah, I just thoughts about thoughts about the Women's Prize or the Man Booker Prize or and prizes in general. I remember hearing you say that initially and my initial response was like, why are these prizes gendered? And I was like, well, every major prize is gendered. If we think about like the Tonys, the Oscars, the Emmys, all of those categories are split uh, based on people's gender. And you, they used to be split based on people's race too. And people realize, like, I remember see, watching this video of Prince when like in the category for like best Negro album of the year. And I remember thinking like, this is absurd. And, but we don't think about that level of absurdity when we see prizes broken down by gender. And it's always interesting because there's these sayings about like, if you're just, if you're using the oppressor's tools to create something new, it, you're going to end up oppressing people. I think that there's a long history of kind of us being totally fine with accepting the binary and kind of stuff that's been coded into our society about how women and men are different. And I, sometimes that comes from like, testosterone produces more muscle. So you have to like, account for that when you're talking about sports, for example, but more often than not, I think it's stemmed from a place of just the society is misogynist and we don't talk about women, therefore we have to create another category for them. But in doing so, particularly in 1991, you said then, which is like long enough ago that I don't think that um, non-binary people were particularly well known of. So I think that like, we set up these things to try to be inclusive and then we learn more about people and about the people that exist and, and need to be accounted for. And it's really hard to say who that's on aside from learning and dealing with those things in a way that's thoughtful. And I think the issue here actually is that like maybe 
the women's prize wasn't as thoughtful with Akweke as they should have been in terms of like how they addressed um, Akweke's transness, which is to say that from the article I read, they were talking about how Akweke was assigned female at birth or like born in a woman's body. It was like not very thoughtful, which is to say also that if that's the measurement, if you say born in a woman's body, which Eh. Um, are you not including trans women, right? Um, mm-hmm. So there's just a lot of... All of these things, I think, need to be evaluated and measured and adjusted. Like, I don't think we can ever plan for every iteration of learning things right. as a society, but we should certainly learn how to adjust. I'm they, also, they just took the oh. humanity out of the person with that article that you're describing. I'm... That just bap- in, in in a time where this was this person was supposed to be celebrated for their accomplishments, they're still and and the book is so much about that. So it's so counterintuitive that we are uplifting this piece of art that you wrote about not fitting in and not being in these binaries, and we will celebrate you in that way by putting you in those boxes. That's. I'm also just tired of people treating trans people like shit. And they're like one of the most, you know, I think the most oppressed groups in our society. And uh, even from like thinking about J.K. Rowling, like you've decided to choose this like battle to fight on. But no, it just is, it makes me so like fresh, like so angry. And I think a big part of it, uh, especially with the Women's Prize and their decision to be, their decision to be more inclusive in a circumvented way, force them to be exclusive. And I think of just so many organizations where like, this is our mission, we're going to do this specific goal, but their specific their specificity of that goal often is exclusive when they're not considering all the fluidity of identities in, in our society. And uh, I, I remember reading about that and getting so angry and thinking, okay, we need to buy this book we need to tell other people to read this book and support Akweke any way possible. It's so annoying that, I know, I, I will not talk about J.K. Rowling for more than 30 seconds, but it's like, you had to make the name, you had to change your name to J.K. Rowling just in case so people wouldn't assume you were male or female. So it's like, you have, uh, I don't want to say received the privilege of, but but you have lived in that world where you've been discriminated against. So it's just, again, it's just counterintuitive. Like, how dare you do the same thing to other people? Like, you know, we listened to that podcast one time about, like, all of these women writers that had to have male pen names to be considered or taken seriously. And so J.K. Rowling is one of those people. When Harry Potter came out, we didn't know J.K. Rowling was a woman. So it's it's frustrating. She's frustrating. I'm done talking about J.K. <laughs> Kind of going back to, I wonder what the solution to these sorts of things are. And I didn't mention this earlier, but I'm in the tech industry, which is not really relevant here, except that it happens to be relevant here. And I've seen this movement of kind of taking groups that are labeled for women and kind of talking about underrepresented genders or like trying to be more inclusionary by, without thinking that the patriarchy is just gone and we can just dissolve all of the lines still being thoughtful about like there are people that may not get as much of a voice as we would like and just making those more inclusive as opposed to you know not having those voices at all what are some things that you experience just in those two because it's like the writing world and the tech world like what are some major differences or is it all discriminatory all patriarchy? <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah. Yes, <laughs> both. Yeah, they. I, I would say that they both have forms of um, like discrimination and of like issues with groups of people and representing them well. I think that there's a pretty big difference between them, if only because the makeup of said groups is pretty different. Like, I would say the writing community is pretty accepting at this point of women, cis women but certainly is still learning about, you know, race, about transness, about queerness, all of these things. Like there's still a lot of growth to be done. I would say that unfortunately the tech industry is still very white, cis, male, hetero dominated. So I think in that space, it's like, I 
I rarely find myself as the only woman in the room when it comes to writing groups, but at work, I often find myself as the only woman in the room still, even though I work for a pretty open, like inclusive company. We will begin our discussion of Freshwater by Akweke Amizi. Trigger warning, uh, there are uh, body dysmorphia, rape, self-harm, general trauma in this uh, story. And I have been hearing a lot of discussion, actually, with writers. I'm thinking of Tanana Rivdu, uh, who is this awesome horror writer. But she, in a recent interview I heard, explained that as a writer, we need to approach like harm, especially harm to black bodies. And I mean, people in general, but specifically harm to black bodies in a very caring, like delicate way. And, uh, I, since I, so much of this trauma I have not experienced, but, uh, parts of it that did resonate with me, the way it dealt felt, it felt delicate. Um, but I do want to, we also want to provide those trigger warnings, um, as well. Yeah. It's an interesting phenomenon that I think has risen from creators that aren't maybe published to start off work by, um, warning their readers uh, about like things that might be difficult for them to deal with. And I think that this is something that um, gives people an opportunity to kind of opt in or opt out of work. But it is difficult given that there is a history of not doing that in the writing community and kind of this idea that as a writer, the impact is lessened if you warn for what's happening up front. So mm. I, I think that like, there's still ongoing discussion in the writing community about like how much we need to warn people about things that might really impact them or like cause them mental distress. I'm thinking particularly in the science fiction fantasy community, uh, Neil Gaiman wrote a collection of stories called Trigger Warnings. And he, he is adamantly on the side of like, we shouldn't provide trigger warnings uh, and that just, I love Neil Gaiman in many, many ways. And American Gods, which actually has a lot of intersection with this story uh, that we're going to be discussing. So he, I mean, he does great things for the science fiction community, but at the same time, here's this like white cis man who is making this statement about trigger warnings. And it would all, it would make sense that he would make this statement against trigger warnings because of his like privileged identity. And this is definitely going to be an ongoing conversation. But for me, as a teacher of like fifth graders, you need to provide trigger warnings for children. Even now I'm like reading a, a story that has to deal with the death of a parent. And we talk about that. Like I, I tell them this is going to happen. And we talk about what trauma, trauma means. We talk about the amygdala. We even talked about yesterday about trigger warnings and about being triggered uh, because that is so important, especially for uh, the groups of students that I teach and uh, especially being in Chicago and, and especially being in the age of Trump where my fifth graders can tell you what's appropriate and what's not appropriate and about how you, you, know, you should talk to somebody, but them seeing... Um, their president treat people like shit like there's there's so much trauma that children experience that for me i i definitely fall on the side like we need to give trigger warnings yeah. i think and sometimes we don't call it like trigger warning this but i i remember sort of getting a a 50 page jump on the two of you and then just set texting in the group like just a heads up getting into some heavy waters here i don't know we i, I think also when i was sharing on instagram that we were even reading this book I was going to, I was like following the hashtag freshwater book and everybody who had shared, like highly recommend all of their captions had trigger warning. Like, you know, this isn't like the year of yes kind of book. Like just, just go in, like buy it, read it. Every person that I've told to read this incredible book, I've also told them like, there's some dark stuff in here in the following categories, but I think you would really benefit from this powerful narrative. Let's go into first impressions. Div, what'd you yeah, think? Yeah, I can get us off. Um, yeah, I really love this book. Her prose is incredible and really fascinating. And the narrative style that she's chosen for her debut novel is 
really like fascinating because you're starting with a plural perspective and kind of going through the story you're understanding why that's the case and uncovering more about these main characters but I think from the get-go there's certainly an enticing element of what is this book why are we starting where we're starting um and I think overall that this is like a really fantastic book about so many topics that I personally um, like connect to and have thoughts about stuff everything from gender issues to how we process trauma to issues with immigration and like belief systems and how we merge kind of eastern conceptions of like belief and what causes things with like the western idea of that. So for me this was a really fantastic read. I would say easy to read, but not in terms of the subject matter so much as like the prose was very fluid. So yeah, I enjoyed myself a lot. How about you, Amber? I don't know. I've never ever read a book like this. I remember right away being confused the first couple pages in. Also, we discovered Div is an incredible, you know, entity because Div can like read the first page of a book and basically know like is it gonna be good or not so we we gave Div this book to be like wait should we read this and that's how we knew that this had to happen yeah I think this is something that I've just thought a lot about um both as a writer and a reader uh I tend to be somewhat picky and also um have thought a lot about how we draw people into books so I think that like I pay a lot of careful attention to kind of the choices that writers are making from the start that'll give me an indication of what kind of writer they are and what they care about and whether it'll be something that resonates with me. So it's hard to say. I don't think it's a magic trick so much as it is like a trained instinct over reading a lot and and having to think about what makes good reading. It's, and for somebody who pretty much exclusively reads, well, prior to this podcast, like memoirs, essays, uh, autobiographies. It was really hard for me the first couple pages in to wrap my brain around what was happening. I know we haven't even, people are like, what is the goddamn book about? <laughs> so this book is about so many things, but mostly uh, a main character who we get to know is the Ada. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to say character. I don't want to gender this character at all. But that the Ada has multiple spirits and energies living inside of them. So think like the adult version of the movie Inside Out, where the Ada can also go into the brain and tell these different personalities like, okay, this is like, let me feel happiness. Let me feel sadness, things like that. So right away, the book starts from the perspective of two of the personality, two of the spirit. I don't even want to call it personalities. Two of the spirits that are inside of the Ada. And I'm saying this because I remember the the realism in me was trying to say like, oh, are these two twins that someone's pregnant with? I just tried to keep grounding this story in reality and... It's, and I think that's what we all do as humans, even when we misgender people, when we label people, we're trying to like make it make sense for our brain and our brain's limitations. And this book taught me that like, I have very limited ways of thinking about things. And eventually, obviously I understood the story and things like that, but I love a book that does, I love a book that reminds me that there's a whole nother dimension and a whole nother world out there that you don't have, you don't know anything about which is obvious, right? But sometimes when we think, well, I've read X amount of books. I know I, I'm i into pop culture. I listen to podcasts. I listen to the news sources or whatever. And then I love a book that's just like, you don't know shit. <laughs> like there's this whole other world out here. And like you said, the infusion of the writer's Nigerian Tamil cultures, the infusion of the writer's uh, non-binary space that they take up you could see all of the influences in the writing and this was a, a world that I was completely immersed in that I didn't know anything about which I appreciated that's immediately what I loved the most about this is that they were the author was using like Igbo spirituality to uh, unpack identity and for this story at least I didn't know if this was like a Igbo spirituality book or was it fantasy and that extremely resonated with me for a couple of reasons. One, I grew up reading uh, this very Christian 
fiction author named Frank Peretti. And he wrote about this world in which angels and demons were fighting each other. And when you, every time I prayed, you were giving angels power to fight the demons. And also, I believed at this point that whenever I did something like egregiously wrong, like if I was angry, I believed I was being possessed by um, a demon of rage. Or if I masturbated, I was being like possessed by a demon of lust. Mm -hmm. And so this resonated with me because in my mind growing up, I often thought I was like possessed by demons when I did something wrong. And the Christian fiction I read wasn't read as fiction. It was read as like, this is how the world is. And, and then very much this is how this book sort of takes that framework. I was using this very Christian spirituality to understand my world. And this person uses Igbo spirituality to understand their identity and their world. Yeah, I think we've we've kind of heard things like that growing up in the Christian faith. Like if somebody was addicted to drugs, I'd be like, Mom, what's going on with this person? And, and I'd... Well, they're just battling a lot of demons right now. Like, have y'all ever heard things like that? And I remember thinking that was silly, but I can't, again, going back to, like, dismissing Christian culture and faith and then, like, revering Igbo spirituality. I'm, I'm sort of, as I get it, I get older because we're all sort of going through this evolution of, like, being rooted in our religion, unlearning a lot of things, a lot of toxicity that our religion taught us, and then coming back and having... Uh, not a reverence for, but just like a, a mutual respect of different people's religion. I know, and it's hard with Christianity because there has been so much harm that has been done. But yeah, that that was really interesting. The things that, you know, even I've heard you say about the Christian faith, but then we read this and we're like, this is kind of similar to some things that are in Christianity. I don't know. I feel like the way that the author is talking about um, kind of Eastern spirituality and using it to define their life and their experience is such a immigrant story, which is to say that like, there's this really interesting phenomenon of kind of being taught to not value kind of your ancestral beliefs as a result of like being placed in this new space and needing to assimilate to America, which is something that uh, this character goes through that I imagine a Quake went through and kind of reclaiming like it, it is to say that it's kind of the opposite experience of Ben's which is that Ben had to learn to kind of take away things that he had grown up with it sounds like whereas I feel like often what the immigrant experiences and what it seems like a Quake's experiences is that you are taught from the get-go to not listen to these things and then you have to find yourself later on being like oh I come from these things and maybe there's validity in them and using them to define yourself in a more powerful way and kind of reclaiming this aspect of your your identity that you have been taught to not think about you know I've been talking about that in my yoga classes I went to this like really great and we can cut this later, I don't care. But I went to this really great continuing education workshop with this veteran yoga teacher that's been teaching like 25 years. So it's like, yeah, I know nothing. And she just had this very, she was just, you know, you know, you talk to people that are just so grounded that you're kind of like, when do I get to your stage of life? And she just kept saying things about like, in a world where things are constantly changing, like who leads our country changes, COVID things change, your job, your house, your spouse, your everything changes, like what doesn't change? And I think about how, what I want for that list of what doesn't change about myself. And I think spirituality is something that doesn't change, but religion does. And I don't know that that list feels so short right now. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe the things that don't change should be only like these four things. Um, but I, I definitely feel that spirituality is always slowly like changing and going off and on that list and, and wondering like why that is. I also think it's a question of autonomy as well, where change is inevitable no matter mm -hmm. what, but it's what do we have control of to change yeah. and for me at least and eventually for uh, the Ada 
and all the spiritualities and the ent the entities who live in the Ada, eventually they're able to like become autonomous and control their change. So I, I'm I'm curious if like if there's something that we can ever not change because everything's going to change. It's just whether we have to consider the things that we can control and the things we can't mm -hmm. control. It's also nice to see the journey. So to give uh, listeners some context, there are quite a few, should we call them spirits that live inside of the Atta? Mm -hmm. So there's the, the twins is what I'll call them. Smoke and shadow. Then there's this sort of, I don't know, alter ego devilish one, Asugara. And then there's St. Vincent, who is sort of the, the masculine energy. And then we have occasional visits from what we'll, we would refer to as Jesus, but uh, Yeshua in the book. And it's, it's interesting that in the way that like you do with like Inside Out and other movies where you've seen all of these different personalities, I felt a lot of tension between those spirits in the beginning of the book and the Ada who who is the body that they're all taking over I guess and then near the end of the book they would meet in this space called the marble there's this sort of like harmonious what do you got like a symbiotic relationship between all of them like at the the they used to give the Ada so much like grief and like because the Ada who is the person moving and navigating the world was just very troubled because you know, their mind is being occupied by all of these different energies. But later we sort of, as we, as we, as the reader grows and develops with the Ada, we see this, I need y'all here relationship between those spirits. And I thought that was just like great writing and great development. And it feels hopeful from the perspective of a quickie, which is to say that like, it feels therapeutic for them to say, well, there are pieces of our lives and things about us and these spirit, spirits that either literal spirits that exist within us or, or metaphorical ones um, that are really disparate and are difficult and we struggle with. Um, but through the process of growth and kind of learning about ourselves and, and dealing with different things, we're capable of coming to a place where we're not in constant turmoil. So it, it really felt like an ode to kind of using spirituality, not quite reality aspects of this novel to explore something that is very relatable and that we all kind of try to figure out like how do we deal with these different aspects of ourselves. That is one of the best parts of the, the book for me is that at some point you think that there's this primary personality called the Ada or the, the Ada and that all these different competing spiritualities are fighting to be at the forefront of the marble or we can say her brain. But I think at the more I read it, I realized that no, there is no teasing apart these, I, these identities. It's, it is one person and they have all these different parts of them that is still this like singular whole. And Doom Patrol, which is this new uh, show on HBO Max, has a very similar idea. And there's a character named Jane there. But uh, Jane has all these like different competing um, personalities, but they're all the same per person. And at one point, this like really aggressive personality takes over Jane, who, they, who comes up from the underground, basically. And, and it's just being a total asshole to everybody. <laughs> At one point, another character, Cliff, is like, I want Jane back. Where's Jane? And I think it's like Hammerhead, the other personality, says, no, you don't get Jane. We are every, like, we are Legion. Basically, this idea that we are everybody. You don't get to pick and choose mm -hmm. who I am today because we are all the same person. There's none, there's none of like the good part, you know? And I, I just think of like, I just think of relationships who are like, I just want the good Amber, you know, I just want, the I mean, Amber. our parents do that. Like, yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. I feel like in a more familiar relationship, like you used to be this, this and this, and now you're all changed. And I just want my little girl back or, you know, you're just like, I, what? <laughs> I can't evolve. God damn it. Still part of me. It's still part of my history. All of it. You know, there's. Drunk Ben is just as real as sober Ben. But oh. 
you know and there's a moment there's a moment in here where uh drunk ada is very different they even say like oh i prefer drunk ada because yeah one of the personalities asagura who has been characterized throughout the book as this like very sexual very dark like kind of protective also but like a responsive trauma definitely uh personality talks about how she asagura does not often feel like the ada is on the same wavelength as her and drunk ada is different right drunk ada shares more traits with asagura and you like get that very specific piece and it's fascinating and they they are the two that really start to get a lot closer I, th- I think we vilified Asugara when we were first met Asugaro. So it's just, again, for context, this is like the alter ego, bad girl, bad Jane or whatever, aggressive, sexually, hypersexual Jane. The interesting thing about Asugara is there's, there's sort of this rule that Asugara is who takes over when Jane, when, goodness, when the Ada is having any sexual experiences and I mean, that's a double-edged sword, right? Because the Ada does have so many traumatic, unconsensual sexual experiences. She had a, a college boyfriend that raped her multiple times. Or just, it just felt very, she felt very disposable and expendable with this partner. But then there was another partner that she married. Uh, his name was Ewan. And the Ada wanted to be conscious for those sexual experiences and Asugara was like that's not how it works like I show up for every sexual experience good violent bad in between and I don't how did y'all feel about those parts because I was I that those are the thing the times when I like went back and forth between like loving Asugara for protecting her through the trauma and the rape but Asugara, like, damn, she can't get one orgasm, just one. You, you've experienced every other thing. Or is, does that mean the Ada is a virgin? Or, you know, we can get into a longer conversation about virginity or whatever. But I don't know. First of all, most of the men in this story are complete assholes. And, right. the, and I appreciate that because I think we need to really start showing men, especially in college, like these man boys, as being assholes. And there's just no apology for like showing that and I think that one I I think that's just honest and connects with it's going to connect with a lot of people reading that as far as like Asugara Asugara for me didn't didn't feel like bad or or good Asugara was a it is a god part of the Ada and trying to like figure out their relationship with the Ada and figure out their relationship with Smoke and Shadow and Yeshua and all these different. So I, I never saw Asugara as this like villain. I, I think Asugara was introduced to us in this very like whenever the Ada is self-mutilating or experiencing sexual boundaries being crossed, here it's the Asugara who's taking over so I mean that's not to say that they're bad but I I got worried as a reader every time Asugara's narrative started because I was like oh god what's about to happen now or or when the Asugara was like I made it so that she wouldn't eat again trigger warning about body dysmorphia it's like I did it I had to starve her so I just knew and I looked forward to I mean it's so well written but I, I knew when I was reading Asugara's parts some of the more pivotal parts of the story were about to happen in the Ada's development. I think that Asugara is born out of the scene that's incredibly traumatic and it's she is a protective measure in that space. But I think right after that happens, you start seeing her put the Ada in situations that are repeatedly just like not comfortable, like sexual experiences that the Ada might not want or things that Amber mentioned, like not eating or changing Dada's body. The, the story takes place in sort of three sections, roughly. There are lots of looping back and forth between sections, but generally it, the first part takes place in childhood and the Ada's childhood, and the second part takes place in college. And then this, the final part is like post-college, her being in grad school and sort of that, that experience. But uh, something that... I sort of like really appreciated about the her childhood and sort of how that sort of connects with sort of the rest of the story is that Theata is a lover of like 
portal fantasy and the lover of um, fantasy in general, and that that fosters belief in the Yada to then have conversations later in life with the entities that are living inside her. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this whole idea that shows up a lot in fantasy, especially like fantasy involving gods, is that belief is the life source of gods. Like if you believe in something, it gives them life and they're able to feed on that belief. And if anybody's seen American Gods, that's like the whole premise of that. And so this reading that, I I felt like this was taking like um, gods and putting them in our everyday life. But the reason I liked this book way more than American Gods is that it told a much more personal internal story. But I think the the childhood chapters for me were some of the the most like like precious in a lot of ways. <laughs> there's this there's this whole line that says the problem with having gods like us wake up inside of you is that our hunger rises as well and someone you see has to feed us. And and there's this idea of like feeding the gods inside you, especially in the earlier chapters. So I, I don't know if anybody could shed some light on that sort of ontology. Yeah, I think that the purpose in the earlier chapters was that you didn't necessarily know what was going on. Like the clarity around what spirits exist, what's happening exactly doesn't, it really starts happening in, a, in the second section, both when Asagara is introduced and when like we get more definition about like what's happening with the Ada. I, I'm curious to hear Amber's take as someone who doesn't read a lot of kind of supernatural or like <laughs> really weird um, fiction, because this was definitely one that in the first section, there's a little bit of like, okay, but like, what of this is the narrator? What of this is actually happening? Also, when we're using the plural perspective, we like, as a separate separate entity, like, what are we talking about? Like, are we talking about multiple gods? Are we talking about like, what's happening? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, again, this book, just like, forget everything you know about reading, because you know, when we learned how to read, we learned like it's first person, second person, third person. But, and I know that we is first person, but when you're learning that you're kind of like, a Quake just invented a, like a fourth way to read things. Did such a, it was so easy for me as somebody who does not read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy because the realities of what was going on in the marble were just as valid and just as present as what was going on in real life so it's like we almost got to know the spirits in their body more than we got to know Sachi the mom Saul her brother her sister there there was such a balance between those two I think like in last week's episode Ben you know we talked about sometimes how it's hard for you to separate like what happened in real life between like what you journaled in your book and it's that distinction this author made it so it's just like it actually doesn't matter like both of these experiences are valid they're both real and true I was trying to like visualize things that were happening and so in my mind every time we were in the marble it was more of a like a hazy like almost like a dream filter in the back and then it got to the point where the whole book felt like a dream filter like in my brain and I just it truly took me on a journey and also we we read things about the author outside of it we read an article which we'll put in the description box about how this author made the decision to get a surgery to remove their uterus because they never wanted to have kids they no longer wanted periods and this is what they need this removal of this is what they needed to feel like their truest self again so they got their uterus removed the author also got a breast reduction and the character in the book got a breast reduction as well and they might have got their uterus removed. I'm not sure, but the, so so you got to this point where you're like, wait a minute, is this a a a, a black fantasy or is this just this author's autobiography? So it, so at that point, it became following the author's real life path and the, with the juxtaposition of reading the book. For me, it felt like I was reading the memoirs and essays and things that I really enjoy reading. And it was through a lens of this Igbo spirituality with uh, St. We haven't talked about St. Vincent, but Mm St. Vincent is personified and like given his pronouns is like he and him. And when the Yada gets the breast reduction and starts wearing, um, like chest binders. Yeah. Chest binders. uh, St. Vincent 
is allowed to come to the forefront at some point because most of the time he's below but then he's allowed to take over this isn't the christian idea of possession which you have to like really understand and like it's a different way of seeing the world and seeing identity but saint vincent i i remember that scene being like oh every single god inside of her gets to come to the forefront and able to be like seen and have an identity and uh which I thought was like just a different way of reading. The Ada also, as well as the author, refers to themselves as a Obanji, which is this again going back to the Igbo spirituality. It's not. It's not a. I don't want to call it a necessary evil spirit. I, I, I don't know how we would describe this, but there were some characters in the book that were like human beings, and then there were again. Because the Quake always creates us like another category. There are these humans that can sense the spirits that are going on in the people's heads. So Melina, I think uh, she was Dominican. And I remember thinking, I remember being like, so what do we do with Melina now? What does this mean for the rest of the story? How did y'all feel about Melina's character? I don't think that Melina is a giant character in the book. But that being said, she is also the one that is almost the most comfortable for the Ada just because like there's some shared experience there or some understanding that whatever is happening to the Ada is not just some form of mental illness for example right there's some validation there that these things that are happening are real and actually like there are other people that see this and and recognize what's happening that is not just like schizophrenia for example or multiple personalities so for the pieces that we did get her, I thought that she brought Milena. Um, I thought that she brought a little bit of a like comforting presence and like a oh, there's some understanding here. Mm-hmm. Of um, it felt like her friend that was like, "I came to the hospital with you to get your uterus removed. You better write me a character, bitch." Yeah, <laughs> like, for real. That's what it felt. I was like, "I got you." But also, to that point, this is it's more cosmic as well because we are given an understanding there are actually other humans that have gods that live inside them and that there have been gods who've been like who've embodied then left that body and now wander around and oftentimes enter into different bodies and that there's this gateway in which gods can escape through and then go into bodies like as they're being born so there's like there's a lot there's a larger like ontology like cosmology here and you're given a very like specific story about it but i i for one like since i love science fiction and fantasy i love world building so there's these like subtle elements of world building that aren't delved in too deeply because this is a story about trauma and identity and working through all of that, but there is a larger like cosmos here, which oh, I yeah. there have to be gods living in certain people, like Beyonce, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Toni Morrison. Like, there's like, there's no way that you're just like a person. You're you're a mortal walking among us. I, there's there's something else. There's another I, spirit in you. Yeah, I think we have to be careful <laughs> with that though, because we, it, yes, you then you sort of take away the their humanity. I I don't know or. Or is there any is there any difference between a human and a god, right? Like I do kind of want to jump back to the discussions we were having about gender and about Saint Vincent. Because I was really interested in the fact that like some of these gods were very clearly like gender representation, which is to say that Asagura was very clearly a feminine presence, uh, used she her pronouns, like was female for all intents and purposes, despite the fact that she did not have her own body. Whereas the Saint Vincent was very much categorized as kind of male energy or masculine energy. Um, But what was interesting to me is kind of the pieces we got where the plural narrator, we or Smoke and Shadow, were talking about how um, the changes to the Ada's body interacted with their gender, um, which is to say that I don't think that these characters were very clearly gendered in any way. It was kind of just like an absence of gender and the way that that interacted with the Ada's surgery and and her gender transformation was was pretty fascinating to me. And I was curious if you guys like thought about that or like just had any yeah so throughout the book i was like trying to gender every character because that's that's the we live in this binary world and 
oftentimes I feel like I would gender St. Vincent and then St. Vincent would do something that I felt like didn't match with my understanding of masculinity. One point I just, with Asugara, I just stopped trying to gender them because they would have these conversations in the marble and they would be fully personified. And I just could not at times really picture or gender Asugara, even though I was trying to. So I, I'm telling you, this is a this is an experience. Reading this at, as a reader is mm-hmm. a whole experience because you're you're forced you're forced to think of things right. You're like, okay, this is the, this feminine masculine energy, but then there's this like gender neutral energy, but then there's this character who is like female, like female body, but also like fluid and 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 so they just sort of tight like wibbly wobbly your whole construct and that for me felt like an experience uh, I think this book forces us not to do that I might have got lost in the the gendered energies of each person because I was just so like in the clouds with like what is is so is this it, I, I think my binaries were what's real what what's real life what's the marble mm. and so when they kept blending those two worlds I was like I need to just stop trying to like game this book and figure it out and just like let it wash over me I want to do you know there, we did talk about self-harm and we're given self-harm at the beginning of the book when we're in the Otis childhood and that self-harm the way self-harm was talked about in this book was not violent Mm. nor as negative as i've read in like ya books because Mm -hmm. in this book the self-harm is actually necessary for the ada to like provide sustenance and like a blood sacrifice for the gods living inside themselves and and the ada first does this as a child she like cuts her the top of her hand as a child um like trigger warning and I, I had complicated feelings about that, especially I think for me, I know students who have like self-harm and I always think of like, you need help. Like you, you're, you are not a neurotypical per, like child, that's sort of a, the teacher in me. And so therefore you need some sort of medication to like help you deal with this trauma. And I think that, that is what we're like called to as teachers as like, a, it was necessary to be done and it provided like important comfort and release and actually in some ways I think prevented further self-harm. I very much saw it as a description of self-harm by a survivor which is to say that like kind of being like well I got through this it was useful for me in some way but we're here now is interesting because like often that perspective is is almost glorifying it right which is to say like well, this isn't the worst thing that could have happened. Like I got through this, like I used this aspect of self-harm to do something else and that was positive, which is very counterintuitive to the way that doctors talk about self-harm, the way that um, teachers have to address self-harm, stuff like that. And I don't think I took it as a as a glorification or as a um, advocation of like this is actually a useful thing so much mm-hmm. as it is a way to justify to oneself that they survived this and it didn't ruin them. Yeah, I mean the author talked a lot about that in the article we read about how their like keloided scars are a constant reminder of who they are. Again, going back to like that what doesn't change now. It's like, this is who I, like I made a decision to remove my uterus and reduce my breast. And now I sort of have this like, I don't want to call it like a ribbon, (laughs) but like a trophy, a reminder that my body is my own and I can do with it what I choose to feel most complete. Because I think we, we so often think about people who self-harm and get huge reconstructive surgeries is like broken and damaged and lost. And the author did a really good job of that article of explaining, like, I needed the removal of this to feel whole. It's hard for us to wrap our brains around people wanting things removed to feel whole. Or I I do, I remember having a, a sorority sister that got a breast reduction for for back pain and for pain management and people feeling you know doing the whole like why would you do that you're perfect 
like God doesn't make mistakes. The whole th- like just shaming her mm-hmm. essentially. Quake uh, did a really good point of like we don't do the same amount of shaming when people get their breasts augmented or bigger to feel more whole. So why are we doing that when people remove things to feel more whole? Like I love shaving my head, and I remember the first time, the first couple times it happened, people are like, "Well, what what is Ben gonna think? Why would you blah blah blah?" It's just like because some people might try to look at that as self harm or self. Not that they're on the same level, but when people when people shave their heads, people are like, "What's wrong? Are you okay? Are you going through something?" So, I don't know. Well, specifically, like women as well. Oh, right? yeah, like that, yeah, the- yeah, exclusively, exclusively, <laughs> exclusively women. But actually, to that point, there, everything. So the line between a, like a Queke's life and then the Adas are mm-hmm. is like very blurry, very because in in the book, at one point, the Ada after her like. After she gets the surgery, they there's a, one of her friends say, you know, "Why would you get go more feminine without boobs? Most people get it done to be more masculine because mm-hmm. the Ada they they decide to wear dresses, e- even despite their surgery." And their friends are like, "Wait, why are you wearing dresses?" And I think that's again just this whole, and uh, and like the queer community, it's like you can be queer this way. So I guess it comes down, it, 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 there's still this like element of privilege within, obviously within mm-hmm. the queer community, that if you are male bodied and you present a uh, queer, people are probably more willing to like recognize your pronouns and say they, them, mm-hmm. theirs and be totally cool with it. But if you're female bodied and wear dresses and decide to present as, as queer and use they, them pronouns, people are going to be like, yeah. They're going to be more confused by that. I, I don't know. Aque- I mean, Aqueque's whole existence sort of challenges that as well. Like, if you if you follow Aqueque and you've been stalking their Instagram like I have been doing, you would not assume that they are transgender. Because in our brains, now that we're, like, finally trying to understand what transgender is, like this doctor in that article that we read, it's like, a doctor can understand, like, a male to female transgender person or a female to male transgender person, but a Quake Imezi wears dresses, wears lipstick, wears earrings, wears heels, and identifies as transgender and has had surgeries, but not in the way that we understand it. It's like, well, if you're transgender, why don't you like a man now? And, and the doctor even says, he's like, yep. I don't understand. In the book, mm-hmm. he's like, I don't understand this in-between thing. And there's this like element where I want to be careful because I think even us having this discussion, sure. another, none of us are trans. It's like, it's not really for us to understand. Right. <laughs> right. And there's that like it's element not. as well. It's just for us to support I think it is worth, like, I I really like that we're commenting on the fact that even within queer spaces, even within the queer community, there's certain understandings of how gender works or how transness works that I'm certain affects a lot of gender non-conforming folks and folks that I know who are non-binary or uh, consider themselves trans feel, uh, that are assigned female at birth largely, feel a need to be androgynous as meaning masculine mm-hmm. um as opposed to like expressing their gender whatever way they want it and then using whatever label that feels right to them really happy with this book as both kind of fighting those norms and forcing even folks who are familiar with these concepts to address ideas that are embedded within you know even trans friendly spaces something that i loved the most about this book is that the Ada and Akweke has um, certain uh, habits. For example, when you read her her essays, she talks about she just grew up reading everything, and eventually she learned that this... The Ada? Akweke. Akweke grew up reading everything. Ada grows up reading everything, has these identities that are just normal for them, and later they find out, going to college specifically that these identities and these habits are unique and these experiences are unique. And that like really resonated with me and something that this book read. So I, as a, as a kid, I was like homeschooled and I tried to kill myself twice. Once was like taking a bunch of pills that I ended up just shitting like in my, (laughs) it was just, I didn't know what I was doing. I love thinking about like you 
and a poor suicide attempt. It was <laughs> just like, it was what, just, what do you even do? It was just it so, right. yeah, I had to get, and then the other time I like tried to use a rubber band. And I remember like it as a kid, right? You do these certain things or maybe you, you commit self-harm and you think this is normal, right? Like this is, this is just what everybody does. And I think that's the experience of the false uh, census effect. That's, I mean, to what I have to say is that, yes, like, reading that, it, I guess it was triggering in some respect, because it was like, oh, man, like, that was, like, really emotional for me, and, like, thinking back, like, how, how I deal with that now, and how I think of, um, like, even how I think of suicide now, because I often am, like, I'm a huge, I believe in, uh, people should have the right to kill themselves if they want to, like, i all about people who have, like, a dementia or all that, like, if they want to kill themselves and they they made that decision in the future, they should have that right. And I feel like this, this story just dealt with suicide very, very differently than mm -hmm. how I got the narrative, because it's sort of like my trajectory is, like, I did this thing as a child because, actually, for a different couple of reasons, I think I wanted to, like, get to heaven faster and I felt like killing yourself would get you there. And then I went and then I grew up, went to college, got therapy, realized like, oh, this is not normal. And now I'm going back at that and thinking about suicide as not like this sad, tragic, terrible event that ruined me. But as this thing that I did that made me who I am today and I am here and I love life and I like want to hold and squeeze the juice out of life as mm -hmm. much as I can. And the way this person talked about suicide just felt very different to me than it did. I think what? it mirrored their surgery experience. I remember something that was prevalent in the article that we read. I know at this point I'm talking about the article more than the book, but we have this fear of irreversible decisions. So suicide is an ir like, a successful suicide is an irreversible decision or someone getting their uterus removed like through their belly, which was the surgery that Akweke had. The doctor reiterated like, if you ever change your mind, if you ever want kids, like there's no way I can reverse this surgery. And so we add boobs, take away boobs, but there are some surgeries like, is it bottom surgery or uh, gender reassignment surgery? I, I think when it comes to those surgeries, People are like, well, it's irreversible. So if this, in case this is a phase, if you ever change your mind, uh, we can't do this again. And so we, we, we're asking people those questions as if to say like, well, you don't really know what you want right now because what you're feeling isn't real. The pain that you're going through isn't real. And so you can't just end your life because that's irreversible. Like when we ask people those questions about like, well, are you sure? Because this is irreversible. Like, what are we really saying in that moment? We're, we're not validating how they feel in their experience. Yeah. And I think the question that we always have is that from the outside, it's really difficult to tell what is kind of a valid experience versus what's a, a mental illness or something that we should teach people to recover from. So I think that a lot of the difficulty here is like, there are so many valid experiences that we're just learning are valid or like... Um, that we need to learn are totally safe, healthy expressions of someone's gender, like, um, you know, maybe breast augmentation, breast removal, versus, like, telling a child that it's totally fine to, like, cut their arms, which is actively a lot more, like, harmful. And, and maybe there's a way for to teach people that, like, you know, they... I think it's just worth saying that, like, we're still very much learning, like, what exists that is not harmful and that can do us good and make us comfortable with our bodies versus stuff that we need to help people solve because they're illnesses. Well, Div, we really greatly appreciate you, you know, coming over at 6.30 in the morning <laughs> to lay down this podcast and talk about... I don't know, self-harm, eating disorder, yeah. rape. Very light morning <laughs> just, topics. Just light banter. Uh, ben, why don't you warp up the show? In conclusion, Equeque Amese's fresh water is a fresh cup of water. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Woof. <laughs> 
don't know if it's a, a cup of water. You need yeah, a cup yeah. of water after is, reading is, it. Is, all right. Uh, in conclusion, fresh water by a quick AMSA is an incredibly important look at gender, at identity, at Igbo spirituality. Go get this book, read it, get a quick A's, other stories, uh, follow them on Instagram and and wear a mask, goddammit. And wear a mask. <laughs> Thanks, babe. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Sci-Fi Side. If you've been loving what you've been hearing, baby, and you made it this far, don't forget to leave us a rating, like, subscribe to the podcast, and also, you know, put a little something, something down on the Patreon. Anyway, next week, we're going to give Bloomhouse Films another chance. I know Black Box failed us, but we're giving Bloomhouse another chance watching the movie Sweetheart, starring Kersey Clemens, directed by brother J.D. Dillard, black man. So don't forget to check out the show, tune in, watch it with us, and we'll see y'all next week. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.